It's August 2022 at a reception in a gallery in Dublin. A photographer from Afghanistan is speaking at the launch of an exhibition of his photos. He speaks to his fellow Afghans in the audience. I would like to say some words to our Afghans who are here. One year previously, some of these people were living in Afghanistan. Taliban fighters have now entered the capital and the president. With the Taliban takeover, their lives were in turmoil. On board a plane due to leave Kabul overnight, but at the last minute, they're told the flight won't be going. Desperate to flee Taliban rule, Afghans are grasping at U.S. military aircraft and risking their lives. While looking at these pictures of Afghans trying to get out of Afghanistan, I was determined to try to get in. Because for a lot of people my age, Afghanistan was one of those first news stories we remember from childhood. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. One of the reasons I wanted to travel to Afghanistan was to see how the return of the Taliban was being experienced by women. The Taliban are keen to portray themselves to the international community as a changed organization. Especially because earlier last year, I heard a news report that made me want to make contact with a particular kind of Afghan woman, a judge. Two female judges were killed by unknown gunmen in the Afghan capital on Sunday. Police say because no of the work they did, Afghan women judges face a particular risk from the Taliban. I was a judge in Afghanistan. From RTE Documentary on One, I'm Hannah McCarthy, and this is The Taliban and Me. So I was wondering, can we just go back to the before the Taliban came? This is a woman we're calling Parandis. It was tough, absolutely awful. She was a criminal court judge in Afghanistan before the Taliban takeover. When I was in my education, one day I had a heated discussion over being a judge with my professor because he said that women are not allowed to be a judge. And I said that, why? Why you are saying like this? He replied that you must marry someone and you must be a mother in the future. And I said that, no, it's not like this. Women can be a judge, a woman can be a mother, a woman can be married but also prove her future. And he said that, okay, I will see. And I said that I will show you. So that was the day that I decided to be a judge. <laughs> so I was a judge in uh, crimes against public security and corruption division. And so smuggling, drugs. Gunfire rings through the streets of Herat. Throughout the summer of 2021, the Taliban had been making gains across the country. Afghanistan's third biggest city, now reported to be under Taliban control. Every day we heard that the Taliban take over this province, this province, this province. Less than 100 miles from Kabul, Taliban fighters... They were taking uh, maybe some two or three provinces uh, in one day. Then, on August 15, 2021, Judge Parandis was in her car on her way to court when she got a call. From my boss. He said, don't come cause the Taliban take over. You must go back to your house. 
Taliban fighters have reached the outskirts of the Afghan capital Kabul, but are suddenly it happened that they take over Parwan province in the morning and the afternoon they take over Kabul. The president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, has reportedly left the country and the Taliban has taken control of the presidential palace in Kabul. And everyone was surprised and also shocked that, oh, how quick they came. Kabul is in chaos. People desperate to leave, taking what they can, fearing a bloody assault. Everyone was calling their siblings, their parents, their friends. 20 years after U.S. forces first arrived in Afghanistan, the Taliban completing its stunning takeover in little more than a week. We are, are you here when you are coming? Oh, are you fine? Everyone was like this. Almost exactly two decades after they were ousted from power. Fighters were filmed inside the presidential palace after Ashraf Ghani... It was a really awful situation. So what should we do? It's, everyone was worried. The streets are full of dread. Tens of thousands of civilians displaced by fighting elsewhere, telling stories of abuses at the hands of the Taliban. The Taliban came into our village in the night. They were murdering the men and boys. They accused them of being in the army or the police. They were taken out of their homes and murdered. They went to the families and they abducted them and they chose one girl and they said that I like you. They are going to their houses and they abducted them. Although her boss had advised her to go home, Parandis couldn't. She'd been a public face in the criminal justice system. And as a judge, she would be easy for the Taliban to track down. Yeah, we were worried about that. Uh, they had our names, our faces, our location, our everything. So Parandis and her husband had to go into hiding. And we changed our locations because it was dangerous for us, you know. For Parandis, this was a return to a world her mother knew, but she herself didn't. Parandis is too young to remember the last time the Taliban were in power. That was in the early 1990s, when the movement grew as a response to civil war in the country. The Taliban promised to restore peace and security, but instead, they quickly introduced a brutal version of Islam. Music and dancing were banned. Men were required to grow beards. And women were effectively banished from public life. They either remained at home, or if they went out, they had to be covered head to toe with a burqa and be accompanied by a male family member. Also, they are beating women when the women are going to the shops and markets. When they are seeing that some of them don't have burqa or maybe showing their hands or maybe their feet, so they are beating on that area. Cover here, cover here. And also, why you are come to this shop, this shopkeeper is a man, and why you are alone with him in this shop. So it was women who suffered the most under Taliban rule. The battle is now joined on many fronts. And to a degree that changed in October 2001. That was when the US invaded Afghanistan. We will not falter and we will not fail. Peace and freedom will prevail. The Taliban were ousted. And for 20 years, there was an emphasis on women's rights. In cities like Kabul, women began occupying positions of power and influence for the first time in the country's history. That is, until August 15th, 2021, when the Taliban returned. 
Afghanistan looks set to fall to Taliban rule as the president has fled the country and foreign powers evacuate their embassies from Kabul. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past of attempting to remake a country through the endless military deployments of U.S. forces. Everyone was like, that's all. You are alive, but you don't know that you are alive. You are not able to do something. You are not able to say something. Even you are not able to think something. That what's going on? What should I do? And they, that they are coming. It was like this. I know everyone was like this. When she went into hiding in the safe houses, Parandis thought of how the Taliban would now deny girls in Afghanistan the life she and her generation had had. We went to school, we do not have any problem. And after that, we graduated from school and we went to university. Parandis's mother had lived through the previous Taliban regime. And as she was a woman, she'd had to give up her job. Because of that, she'd reveled in the chances that Parandis had. She was very happy. It was like this, that she's going with us in the school. She's going with us in university. She's going with us in our job. My mother was a teacher. Another teacher who was working in Kabul last year is Ethan McManus from Meath. She had been living in Kabul for nearly two years at that point. They would always have gained control, lost control, gained control, lost control of certain areas. All last summer, she was watching the progress of the Taliban through the country towards the capital. As the Taliban moves in, the West moves out. After the first Taliban fighters entered Kabul on the 15th of August, Aoife and her colleagues moved to a building near the airport. There, they waited to board their flights to leave Afghanistan. While outside the last remaining U.S. base at Kabul airport, chaos continues. And there were several thousand people outside when I had arrived there with their suitcases, hoping to leave Kabul with one of the emergency visas. American troops worry if they open the gates, people will flood in. I'm aware of what I look like. You know, I'm a Western female with blonde hair and blue eyes. Like, I stand out as being kind of what the Taliban don't like. So, I mean, the worst thing in my head would be that somebody from the Taliban would see me. We're just going through the security gate. One woman who was very visible to the Taliban last August was Irish woman Mary Ellen McGrowerty. Mary Ellen is the director of the United Nations Food Programme in Afghanistan. So they're just checking the car now to make sure there's no devices or kind of bombs on the car. She's based in this heavily guarded compound outside Kabul. She's from Donegal. I am indeed born, bred and buttered. Even before the Taliban came into the city on August 15th, Mary Ellen had made the decision to stay. No, we weren't taking down yet the blue flag of the UN in Afghanistan. Our staff weren't being interfered with, our operations were not being interfered with. So what we did is we released all the national staff to be able to go home. A lot of uncertainty as to whether we would see them again, particularly the national female staff, because they had a lot of those nightmares from the 90s. And I remember even my own staff assistant, Mujda, like, was in tears as she was leaving, like, Mel, when am I going to see you again? Taliban fighters in Kabul as they begin final takeover of Afghanistan. We have, uh, you know, residents telling us that the Taliban are in many different 
We have a bunker, right? We went there and I think we were there for about 45 minutes as we were trying to get updates from outside. Probably everybody that night slept in their clothes and had their shoes on. Elsewhere, gridlock as citizens tried to flee the capital. A day long feared by many came at lightning speed. We also run the humanitarian air service. So we were quite interested in seeing what the airport was looking like. With crowds continuing to gather near Kabul airport, questions... And you could actually see the desperation in people trying to get into the airport. Some hung onto the wheels and fell to their death. Those left behind could only watch in horror. The chaos at Kabul's airport, a sign of the distress over what's ahead. With Afghanistan's land... Aoife McManus from Meath was still staying out near Kabul airport. But she and her colleagues decided that the area was too risky. So they returned to Kabul city to stay in a safe house there. As they were driven into the city, 24 hours after the fall, Aoife looked out the car window to see if anything had changed since the Taliban takeover. Yeah, the streets were different because where there would normally be police checkpoints, it was now Talib men standing at those checkpoints. Things hadn't changed so much at that point in terms of how people were dressed. A couple of people had covered up more, but not many, but you know, it was dark. Really, it was a kind of a stressful journey. Aoife and her colleagues made it safely back into the city. Elsewhere in Kabul, the Afghan judge Parandis was moving around various hiding places. More than most, she had reason to be afraid. Not only because she might be caught by the Taliban, but also because she might be found by some of those who had appeared before her in court. Taliban fighters took over Kabul's main prison this morning, freeing inmates as they entered the capital. I sentenced lots of accused persons to jail, even Taliban and ISIS. And I was well known for them, and they knew who am I and who are my family. Thousands of prisoners set free, including members of Al-Qaeda. While Parandis hid from the released prisoners and the Taliban, the Irish school teacher Aoife McManus actually ended up being around the Taliban for several days. They knew where I was, they knew who I was, me and everybody else that was around me. And it wasn't an issue because what they really wanted at that point was for everybody to leave. They didn't want international incidents. They were telling the world, we're here now. You know, there's going to be no more fighting. Please leave peacefully. And that's what they wanted to happen. I guess those kind of, was it four days then that you spent in Kabul waiting for the flight? Mm -hmm. You know, what was the communication like with the Department of Foreign Affairs and, you know, with your NGO? Uh, from the Department of Foreign Affairs, it was kind of any time there was an opportunity for a flight. I would be contacted about it. You know, for example, say there was a, an evacuation flight with one country and the meeting point was, you know, X gate at whatever time. And then it would be difficult for me to have an escort to get to that gate at that time necessarily. But then often a text message came, actually don't move, it's not safe. Maybe threats had been issued near that gate, like one embassy in particular who had contacted me. And it was a back and forth over a couple of days. Okay, now we'll go. Okay, now don't. Back in the UN compound, Mary Ellen McGrowardy of the World Food Programme, known as WFB, was watching the situation closely. 
Yeah, I was worried myself. I mean, you're wondering what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. What's it going to bring? And was there ever any conversation of whether you, know, you as a woman would be able to continue on? Yeah, I mean, we did sit down and think about it. You know, is that going to be an issue? And then made the decision, well, that's not going to send the right signal, right? You know, and we thought, I mean, if we're serious about women's rights and girls' rights, then the reality is that the WFP is headed by a woman in Afghanistan, and that's it, you know? And when you finally did make the journey to the airport, what was that like? Yeah, well, I mean, we got an escort as close as possible to the airport. There was, I mean, there were a lot of people. There was a big crowd, but it wasn't an angry crowd. I didn't feel any animosity or anything in that crowd at that time. And then we were safely guided as far as the gates of the airport and then the US Marines brought us through. And how long then did you spend in the airport from when you got inside the airport to kind of stepping inside an airplane? I arrived there in the evening and left the next morning. Okay. So you yeah. guys all slept kind of somewhere in the airport? Or? Yeah, no, it wasn't a lot of sleeping. I think there was some dozing. The whole time there's gunfire, tracer bullets in the air. You know, there's always this activity and there's thousands of people there with their 10 kilo luggage waiting to be processed and waiting to step onto a plane to a whole other life. It's a very charged atmosphere to be in. On the 19th of August, four days after the fall of Kabul, Aoife boarded an evacuation plane to Pakistan. And, you know, we all thought that that when we were taken off on the plane, that it would be this huge sense of relief and almost like that movie Argo. In my head, we were all going to go, yay, when we took off on the plane. But it was the start of this like confusing process of watching the sunrise over a city and realizing that the sun was rising on a different city. It was the same, but it was absolutely almost never going to be the same again. You know, that everybody was waking up that day to not knowing what was going to happen next. People kept saying to me, you must be delighted, you know, we're so glad you're out, but you must be so relieved, you must be so happy. And I didn't feel happy. You know, I felt almost guilty that I was out and other people weren't out. One of those who wasn't out was Parandis, the Afghan judge. Unlike the situation for Westerners like Aoife, who were able to go through checkpoints by saying they were aid workers, the situation for Afghan judges like Parandis was much harder. There wasn't any way they could go up to a Taliban checkpoint and say, hey, I'm a judge, let me through. That just wasn't a possibility for them. But Parandis had made contact with worldwide legal bodies like the International Association of Women Judges and the International Bar Association. I was in touch with them before capture of Afghanistan by Taliban. There had been a lot of communication from the international organisation. This is Irish High Court Judge Mary Rose Geerty. Warning us that this tragedy was unfolding and that the female judges in Afghanistan were going to be under threat. And indeed, as we've discovered since, that was borne out. Judge Geerty was one of several Irish judges who was asked to help get female judges out of Afghanistan. A group of us began to try and really, I suppose, crisis management. We tried to bring together a group that would work with the Department of Justice, the Irish uh, Refugee Protection uh, Programme, to see could we coordinate a situation in which women could safely be brought here. So even when judges did receive offers of asylum or visa letters, it was incredibly difficult to leave Afghanistan. 
Parandis was also four months pregnant at the time. And the situation around the airport was incredibly dangerous. Several people were killed and seriously injured in crushes. The government is sending a number of special forces soldiers to Afghanistan to help... On August 24th, the Irish government sent a team of army rangers and diplomats to assist Irish citizens and residents in Kabul. ...with two Department of Foreign Affairs officials. But this team weren't able to leave the airport grounds to help high-risk Afghans like Parandis. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Tim O'Brien. What were the kind of main concerns, what were the kind of risks you were trying to manage? Well, the main concerns were how were we going to identify the Irish citizens? How were we going to evacuate them? So what the military were doing was going to the perimeter and with colleagues from other militaries identifying people. If someone said they were Irish, then we would take them aside, check their paperwork, then hand them over to the diplomats who would confirm and then find them a way out. It is now one of the largest airlifts in history. At Kabul airport, flights are taking off, but everyone here knows the window of opportunity is closing. But there was a very hard deadline on the work of Tim O'Brien and his colleagues. The Americans had declared that the 31st of August was going to be the deadline for withdrawal. And then, as you're aware, there was a suicide attack. Taliban officials have said that at least 60 people have been killed and 140 others injured in two bomb attacks outside Kabul's international airport. The Pentagon confirmed that... 12... So the situation there was deteriorating rapidly and that was it. Once we got out, there was going to be no going back. We had a planning figure of approximately 36 people we were looking for. We evacuated, I believe it was 17. By the time the US troops and the Irish Army Rangers withdrew, over 100,000 people had been evacuated. But of that number, only 20 were female judges out of a possible 250. And despite the very clear risk she faced from the Taliban, Parandis was not one of them. She still didn't have a visa yet, but she was told that if she could make it to the city of Mazar Sharif in the north, there would be a safe house for herself and her husband. But to get there, they would have to go through Taliban checkpoints. Yeah, yeah, of course, but I wear bukra and mask also. And that they don't know me. And we were one month in safe house, in and one who, month. Who organized the safe house? International Bar Association. Was it just you in that house? Or no, 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 no. Other people was uh, judges, lawyers, prosecutors, defense lawyers, uh, and doctors, and also uh, human rights defenders, yeah. activists with their families. Yeah. The term safe house sounds innocuous enough, but it's really a temporary prison where you're in constant fear of being found. That, and you have to fill the time when you're there. I was talking with my family, seeing the news and what are they doing, what rules are they issuing day by day. I was not able to eat anything. I was not able to drink anything because I was in high level of stress. Also, Parandis was several months pregnant. I know the stress effects and the pregnancy. Then, at the beginning of October, Parandis was in the middle of a conversation with her mother when an email came through. I said to mom, mom, uh, wait, I, um, I must see my email because on that time email was very important. Everything was coming on our email. I opened my email, oh, it was from Ireland visa. And I said that, Mom, we got Ireland visa. She said, congratulations for you. 
The fact that female judges like Parandice were getting visas to come to Ireland was gratifying to those who had lobbied on their behalf, like Judge Mary Rose Geerty. Here was a group of people with whom some of us could identify absolutely directly because we knew exactly what they did for a living. And we knew that was why they were being targeted. There was a huge feeling of solidarity with them. And I think that's one of the reasons the legal community came together really strongly and really quickly to get these women out. This international legal community didn't just lobby for visas. They also arranged evacuation planes through private contractors. Parandis was told that there were two seats on an evacuation plane to Greece for her and her husband at the end of October. Greece had become this sort of focal point for the effort to evacuate the Afghan judges because the Greek president was herself a former judge. At night, I received a text that they said that tomorrow you will fly from Mazar Sharif up to Greece. So Parandis had a visa for Ireland and permission to fly to Greece en route now. But they then woke up the next morning to the news that the Taliban weren't going to process anyone through the airport who didn't have a passport. You know, I shocked. My eyes became big and my face became white. Oh, so what should I do? Eventually, the Taliban were persuaded to allow those with no passports to leave through the local airport. But then the next message came through that they wouldn't be allowed to bring any luggage with them. They'd have to leave behind everything they had packed. You know, I had red shoes. I liked that shoes too much. When I was buying my shoes, I was with my mom and my sister. We went to the shop and I liked this shoes and I said that I will buy this one. And my mom said that, no, it has long heel, don't buy this one. I said that, no, I like this one. So I bought it. And uh, from that time, I wore that one many times. And I was comforted with that. And it was my lovely shoes. So, but I left it behind there. But Parandis was still hiding the fact that she was a judge and she had to get through the security checks at the airport before she and her husband could get on the plane. Her documents were checked by a member of the Taliban. He became very suspicious when he saw the document granting Parandis and her husband permission to fly to Greece. And he said, oh, what was your job? You know why he asked this question? Because on that permission, my picture was at the top and my husband's picture was at the bottom of that paper. And he feel that it's my case and I had a job in Afghanistan. And I said that I didn't have any job. I was a housewife and he said, oh, you are a housewife, but your picture is at the top of this permission. And I say that, yeah, because my relatives are living there and they are supporting me and they're not my husband's family. Because of this, my picture is at the top of this one. For one minute, he was looking me up and down. Maybe he wants to put me on pressure, so I should tell him that I was a judge. I didn't reply to anything. And I was there and I was waiting. So after that, he said that, okay, you can go. I called my mother and I said that I'm going, mom. I don't know when. Um, I will see you. I will see my father. I will see my siblings. But um, I must go. And 
I must leave Afghanistan. Yeah. So while Parandis waited in Athens in November to board a flight to Ireland, I boarded a flight to Kabul to report on the new Taliban regime. Since the chaos of the airport evacuations, some normality had returned to the city. The streets were a lot like the teacher Aoife McManus had described them to me. People are on the street, people are bustling around. There's fruit sellers, people on their bicycles, people chatting with each other, somebody selling shoe leather, you know. One thing that hadn't changed since the August takeover was the long queues outside banks. Kabul is in chaos. Crowds descended on banks trying to take out their savings as police officers and security officials abandoned their positions. There was, and there still is, a massive shortage of money in Afghanistan. And most banks simply didn't have enough cash to pay all the Afghans who had trusted them with their savings. Part of the reason for the cash shortage were the economic sanctions the West imposed on the country when the Taliban returned. For example, the US and the EU froze around $9 billion of reserves held by the Afghan Central Bank overseas. This is one of the reasons banks in Afghanistan don't have enough cash. And even before the shock from sanctions, Afghanistan had a fragile economy anyway. I mean, I think it's important to remember that the crisis that we have now wasn't just happened after the 15th of August. This is Donegal woman Mary Ellen McGrowerty, who we heard from earlier. She's running the United Nations World Food Programme in Afghanistan. I mean, 2020, 2021 and 2021 have been the most severe drought in 30 years, right? 75% of the population live in rural areas are dependent on agriculture, right? So we've had a massive deficit in wheat production. So we were already planning to scale up for a massive drought response given what, what, what was coming this year. The conflict over decades has created, sadly, one of the biggest population of widows in the world, in Afghanistan. So you've had a huge amount of vulnerability already before the 15th of August. So before August 2021, around 80% of Afghanistan's budget came from foreign countries. But when the Taliban took control of government ministries, this was cut off overnight, and there was suddenly no funding for public sector salaries. That put a whole new level of meltdown, right? You know, I mean, in terms of rupturing the middle class, uh, with salaries not being paid. And of course, rupture the middle class, there's a whole labour economy with, beneath that as well that we have seen just being completely wiped out. Today, you can see the effects of the economic crisis in malnutrition units across Afghanistan. They've been overwhelmed with babies and children struggling to survive from a lack of food. When we admit the babies, most of them, they are in very critical state, so they go straight to these two rooms, which is ICU. This is Gaia, an Italian nurse working in a malnutrition unit in Herat in Western Afghanistan. It's run by the NGO Doctors Without Borders. They have, uh, of course, malnutrition, plus some other pathologies which kind of aggravate their state. Pneumonia, can be diarrhea, can be congenital disease, heart disease, a cleft palate. Gaia refers to a cruel irony in Afghanistan. 
despite the drought, there is food for sale. People just don't have the money to buy it. Like if you go to the market, there is food available. They just don't have the means to access. So the World Food Programme and a local NGO do provide cash handouts. They're allowed to provide some humanitarian aid under the sanctions, but it's not much. I went to one distribution centre in Kabul and spoke with some of the people queuing for hours to receive $50 for food and heating oil. His, his name is Sami. I met one young boy who had come to collect the payment for his family. He came here about 6, 6 a.m. today. He said that he lost his father in the fighting and he just have uh, his mother. So he lost his father when he was three years old. Does his mom not like coming out? His, his, his mother preferred to give his name because his mother don't have an identity card. So even if you do have cash in Afghanistan, it's often not enough. Either prices have gone up or the products aren't available. Sanctions on the banking system make it very difficult for businesses to import goods. I visited a pharmacy in Kali Fatala Market in Kabul and spoke through an interpreter to the owner. We can't uh, pay the salary of our staffs and as well, the, they didn't know that, how they can keep continuing their business. Well, what does he think about America for putting the sanctions and withdrawing the aid? Does he understand it, why they did it, or does he think it's wrong? This policy of America is uh, very good because of the Taliban, because they can't continue their leadership. That's good for that side, but for the people of Afghanistan, for the poor people, that's not good. So they said that all people of Afghanistan, they're trying to leave Afghanistan. One of the places they're trying to go is the neighbouring country to the east, Iran. Carl Ashley is with the UN Migration Agency and has visited their reception areas on the Iranian border. You see those several thousand people come over every day and, and many of them are, are fairly desperate looking. They've got very few personal belongings. Many of them are very grubby and dirty and many are injured. Many have the intention to try to get work in Iran, but being undocumented, many Afghans struggle to get that work. In Iran, the, the conditions can be pretty tough. The migration journey to Europe, for example, may start on that border. I wondered about his relationship with the Taliban. We've met with them several times and they have been willing to listen to what we have to say and vice versa. They've been courteous and, and relatively professional. That's fine for Carl Ashley. He's a man. What about his UN colleague, Mary Ellen McGrowerty? She's running the UN's food programme, the WFP. She has to negotiate safe passage for truckloads of food for starving Afghans. So what's it like for her trying to carry out those negotiations with the Taliban as a woman? They naturally defer to the interpreter or to any men that you have with you. Well, one thing she says is that at the meetings, you have to take the space. It's really about taking that front seat and being assertive in that front seat. 
without being brash or anything, you know, just being being respectful. You know, some of them, I have to say, it's like talking to your old grandfather, right? You know, so they're very softly spoken and everything else and others that are a little bit more threatening. And each one is different, huh? I mean, I had one, he's only got one eye. He wanted me to move so that I wouldn't be in his line of sight of his good eye, right? You know what I mean? So there's different things like that, that they don't want to be looking at you directly. And But yet you can see, if you look from under the scarf, you could actually see them looking at you, right? And then the fact that I tell them, you know, I was here on the 15th of August and I stayed on the 15th of August and I stayed throughout. They go, you did? I said, yes, I was here. And then they suddenly think, okay, yeah, they, they sort of open up a little bit more to talk to you. So the fact that we've had a presence and we maintain that presence has given us a little bit of um, a shoe-in. So I had a brief glimpse of just such a shoe-in when I was working in Kabul last November. Hospital closed. I was recording a protest at the health ministry when I was invited in to have an interview with the Taliban Minister for Health, Dr. Bad. Along with other Taliban figures, he was on this sort of charm offensive at the time. They wanted to convince foreign press that sanctions should be lifted, because they said the new Taliban regime was different from the last one. So Dr. Abad said that part of his job was to convince his staff of this, particularly the female staff. I sit with them, I talk with them and uh, tell them to now there is a peace and a calm. We have a respect for you, all of you. And especially, especially, I talked with the female staff. They must come to their jobs and they are secured by every means. Such a reassuring tone allowed some Afghans to hope. And um, what grade are they in? For example, a day or so later, I spoke with three teenage girls who were not allowed to attend school at the time. Even though their school had been bombed a few months previously and over 80 people had been killed, these girls were desperate to go back to education. In, in August, what was it like hearing that they weren't allowed to go to school? It was very difficult and it was very terrible. Okay, okay. and do their parents think that they'll be allowed to go back to school in January? Mm. He said that my parents is hopeless that, and they say for her that uh, you may not continue a lesson more than this. And how did it feel when she heard them say that? She said that I didn't care to my parents' speech and I am hopeful that I can continue my lessons. Her parents were right to be hopeless. The secondary schools for girls didn't open last January. Then they were supposed to open last March. That didn't happen either. One of those still working on education for Afghans is Aoife McManus, who was evacuated last August. She's back in Meath, but working remotely for the education NGO, which employed her in Afghanistan. I would hope that all that has been learned or experienced in the last 20 years in terms of forward movement in education, you know, experiences, understanding the possibilities and the education, I guess, that people have already received. I would hope that it would stand to everybody, that things won't be as bad as was initially feared and that no matter how it moves forward, hopefully it moves forward in the same direction, in the right direction, that it can't be undone. But it is being undone. Afghanistan's new leaders don't want girls to get secondary education. At a conference for senior Taliban leaders last June, 
Out of 3,000 delegates, education for girls was mentioned by just two. This is a sticking point for the international community, which has tied the lifting of sanctions and the unfreezing of assets to the rights of women and girls. And this is a problem for Mary Ellen McGrowerty of the World Food Programme. She wants rights and education for girls and women, yes, but she also sees the harm the international efforts are doing. Think about the impact on the ordinary Afghan people. It is nobody's choice where they are born or when they are born. And from what I see is the children of Afghanistan, just by the sheer lottery of birth and the lottery of geopolitics, getting caught up in something that's not of their own making. One child of Afghanistan is at the photo exhibition in the Dublin gallery we heard about earlier. She's asleep in a buggy. Her mother is the judge, Parandis, who is now living here with her husband. She's a good girl. She's sleeping during the night, but uh, sometimes she's not sleeping during the day. And uh, we are enjoying our time with her. She was born in Ireland. You know, when she born here, she was our new life. Uh, when she born, I became too much happy because she born alive and her hands, her head, her feet, everything was okay. And just to let you know, we're being vague on the details of her life here for the protection of her family members still living back in Afghanistan. When I'm in my house, most of the times I'm crying, you know, because uh, I didn't say goodbye with, uh, for my um, mother. Every day that I'm cooking, I'm taking its picture and uh, I'm sending for my family. And I'm putting one text that I cook this meal. I know these uh, kind of things make them happy. So I'm not crying for them. When I'm speaking with them, I'm laughing and I'm saying that uh, I'm fine, don't worry. So it seems Parandis's professor was right the man who prompted her to become a judge with his sexism. She's actually doing as he predicted. She's a mother and a housewife. And that's it. Or not. There is the matter of an Irish university course. I have one offer to start my master's degrees in common law. 